Thanks for welcoming me, everyone. It's also wonderful to hear, to see so many people who've been important to my journey over the last few years at MIT. And I'm excited to be able to kind of beta test um, an early version of uh, the first part of my dissertation with the CMS community, because I think you'll especially have some interesting perspectives and feedback. So in the summer of 2015, Professor Stephen Hawking held a question-answer session on Reddit, a popular social news platform. The conversations reached tens of millions of people, and over 12,000 people submitted questions on everything from cosmology to AI. And Hawking also received other comments, questions that mocked his illness and his personal life. These comments, while incredibly distasteful, do illustrate some of the less risky forms of online experience. Sometimes our experiences interact with mental health risks, as Wikipedians have discovered. Working together, they've developed community support structures for contributors with mental illnesses uh, and who face suicide risks. And digital risks are also related to physical harm. It could be this man who responded to online conspiracy theories in November by bringing and firing an assault weapon in a DC pizzeria, or it could be the large number of domestic abuse cases that also involve online harassment. Uh, 40 to 40% 40 of internet users in the US have experienced some kind of online harassment. Uh, with 7% of Americans, around 22.9 million people have experienced the most severe forms, which range from physical threats, stalking, sexual assault, sustained harassment, which can draw out over years. In roughly half of cases, people know who the harasser is. But what might we do about these kinds of things, including the comments received by Professor Hawking? The comment isn't illegal, uh, although you might appeal to law. It doesn't violate the Reddit company's policies, so the site's professional staff are unlikely to respond. Uh, this cruel joke does violate the policies of the community, the science discussion community that hosted Professor Hawking, and it was removed by a volunteer moderator. Yet even before a moderator removed it, other readers used their power to vote on the comment, making it less prominent. Voting systems like this have existed since the late 90s, but it was only in 2014 that researchers did the first causal research on the effect of downvotes. Their quasi-experiment found that uh, on political news discussions, downvoting someone leads them to behave more badly, more frequently over time, and that it drags down communities. In fact, it took 17 years uh, since the introduction of downvoting before someone actually looked at the question of whether it improves people's conversations. Nor is this an isolated case. Researchers recently looked at, back at uh, work by Instagram and Tumblr aimed at reducing conversations about self-harm and uh, anorexia, pro-anorexia discussions, and they learned four years later that those interventions may have actually increased the rate at which those things were discussed on the site. Online platforms could have tested the effects of downvotes with a randomized trial, an A-B test, that compared the potential outcomes between conversations that had downvote buttons and conversations without them. In fact, this, this lack of causal knowledge on public interest issues is quite puzzling since online platforms 
routinely conduct up to hundreds of randomized trials per day on questions related to sales and advertising. This chart published by Microsoft in 2013 showed that in some cases, they're doing up to 300 experiments per day on the Bing.com search engine. These social experiments are extremely common in our online environments, and the work that researchers do is an important plays an important role in our public life. Such an important role that Stuart Geiger has argued that people like me, researchers, data scientists, form a core part of the elite civil service and bureaucratic core of our era. At the same time, uh, platforms play, face tremendous public distrust over experiments focused on public well-being, especially at times when that research is seen as secretive or deceptive, and oftentimes it is. In 2014, when Facebook conducted experiments aimed at uh, understanding the effect of their newsfeed algorithms on the sentiment of people's posts, they faced substantial public criticism. I believe that concerns over the ethics of online experiments go deeper than ethics. Uh, to public and political concerns about the kinds of power that platforms currently exercise to observe, influence, and govern the everyday social lives of billions of people. Platform power might bring great benefits and mitigate serious risks around mental health and other issues, but we also need ways to evaluate the uses of that power for their contribution to the common good as people uh, like Rebecca McKinnon have argued more widely about the, platform, the power that platforms wield in society. Today I'm going to talk about the history and the politics of the design of social experiments. I'm gonna argue that if we care about reconciling values of democracy with the tremendous power of online platforms, we need a way to reconcile the way we do experimental research with those democratic values. While the scale and uh, details of platform power are recent, we have much to learn from other moments in Unis history where new technologies of data processing and the challenges of rapidly scaling an area of human endeavor prompted debates about democracy and experimentation. In the development of systematic management during the Industrial Revolution, in the introduction of computerized evidence-based policy in US policy in the 1960s, and I'll end the talk by summarizing new work that I'm doing to prototype large-scale citizen-led experiments online. Why management and policy? Uh, I choose these because online social experiments merge questions of social policy with questions of business management. When Reddit delegates moderation work to volunteer teams who decide what to remove and what not to remove, they're making a business decision about the labor that upholds their system. They're also making a policy decision about how to govern people's behavior on the platform. Uh, Tiziana Terranova has called online platforms social factories since our cultural and social relations online generate value. Platforms need ways to cultivate profitable versions of that cultural activity. In other words, they need to research management techniques that go beyond managing employees to managing users. But that management is also governance. In the business literature, Prahalad wrote about it this way. Since the market is becoming a forum for conversation, if firms want to generate value uh, through what would 
come to be known as platforms, they need to develop both infrastructure and governance. Indeed, by adopting the language of platforms, companies sit in this overlapping space between management and policymaking. As Tarleton Gillespie points out, companies like YouTube make management decisions about what to show, how to promote it, uh, but those are decisions that also affect public goods around public discourse, uh, things that we typically consider to be policy matters. Because management and policy are deeply intertwined online, the histories of management research and policy evaluation offer us rich sources for thinking about uh, these matters of power in social experimentation and data science. So let's start in the 1930s, three years after Charlie Chaplin's film Modern Times. Experimental psychologist Kurt Lewin is approached by the Harwood Clothing Factory, who, who is struggling to understand the problems with their efforts to increase productivity. They were doing everything scientific managers would expect them to do. They carefully defined, quantified work tasks for their workers. They tracked employee performance. They gave them good benefits. They even funded neighborhood institutions. But people kept performing poorly, as defined by the company, and leaving all outright. Over the next 10 years, Lewin would conduct a series of experiments at Harwood that would create new paradigms in management theory uh, and launch social psychology into a major field, transforming the politics of social experimentation. Harwood in the 1930s was a classic example of what Joanne Yates calls the corporate welfare style of systematic management. Starting in the mid-1800s with railroads, uh, US firms had increased the scale of production through management techniques that tried to improve control over business operations and consequently laborers. Here's how Yates says fact, these factors co-evolved. As companies grew from a few dozen people to hundreds or thousands of workers at multiple locations, they developed theories of management for controlling labor at that scale, theories that came into being alongside information technologies. One example is the stopwatch, which was used by managers to systematically define worker roles. These efficiency measures reduced the agency of individual workers and helped set benchmarks for employee performance and pay. Scientific management consultants like Frank and Lillian Gilbreth, they would use these clocks to measure the units per hour of certain parts of, of labor. They would then conduct experiments to test the most efficient and sometimes the most safe ways to do a task. In this particular case, increasing the rate of clerical output by 61%. As firms basically A-B tested work processes in factories, they'd also developed information technologies for processing data on work performance. Uh, these managing theories depended on detailed records of each major task in the production process. And Yates documents how firms produce, you know, drew on forms, card systems, file cabinets, systems for copying data, org charts, memos, and even the early efforts in information visualization. As Alfred Chandler argues in The Visible Hand, control through statistics quickly became a science and an art, and the researchers who exercised this control were the earliest management consultants. Of course, many workers resisted this move towards systematic management, especially machinist unions. Here at the Watertown Arsenal, machinists went on strike in 1911 after Taylorist management consultants 
try to impose stopwatch and piecework style uh, labor policies in the armory. Uh, and uh, this became a wider like movement in labor relations. Systematic managers considered democracy a risk, and they resisted collective bargaining by unions. Uh, they preferred to think about individual people as individual units uh, that could be independently optimized. The, this idea was challenged by Robert Valentine, who is actually a former head of the MIT writing program, who participated in the US Commission on Industrial Relations a year after the Watertown strike. Uh, writing in 1916 in the Bulletin of the Taylor Society, Valentine mapped out the social structures that shaped factory work and argued that this focus on measuring and managing individuals failed to match the group structure of the actual manufacturing experience. In an article, he argued that organized consent, as well as individuals' consent, could be the basis of a more efficient group. That management experts should look at the new field of social psychology to develop theories for organized consent that would allow democratic groups of workers to use the tools of scientific management themselves. This idea of building up democracy through citizen consider or worker consideration of scientific data. Now, Valentine's ideas were celebrated in places like the New York Times Magazine, but management experts hated this idea. The Taylor Society published his work, but they also published 10 rebuttals alongside of it from prominent scientific management thinkers. And over the next two decades, some people did try some of these ideas uh, of organized consent. Bureaus of standards, shop conferences, unions started their own research teams, and there were even collectively negotiated union factory research endeavors, uh, some of which were cut short by the Depression. But overall, managers dismissed the idea that democracy and efficiency were compatible, and they did so on what they thought was an experimentally valid scientific basis. Uh, which brings us to pajamas and Nazis. When, when the pajama makers of Harwood Manufacturing asked Kurt Lewin, the psychologist, a Jewish-German refugee from Nazi Germany, to help them solve their productivity and turnover problems, most management theorists would have dismissed democratic approaches. But Lewin was worried that American factories and schools looked too much like the autocratic institutions he'd left behind in Nazi Germany, and much less like the democracy he thought he'd come to in the United States. As an experimental psychology, Lewin is aware of the close ties between the fields of eugenics, statistics, and psychology. In writing from MIT in 1944, he looked back on the first half of his students' work at Harvard and drew a line between autocratic and democratic organization as he saw it, and the research that upheld those two approaches. Lewin believed that social forces, not just individual ones, influenced human behavior. He also believed that by studying those social ex forces experimentally uh, out in the world, it would be possible to support a, a commonwealth, a democratic commonwealth, where uh, citizens uh, use scientific investigation to better understand uh, group living. In the set of experiments at Harwood, Lewin's student, Alex Bavlas, analyzed employee productivity and turnover in groups. He set aside a treatment group uh, who, instead of being told what to do, actually set their own goals and made group decisions. 
and compared that to what he called autocratic management. Uh, we wouldn't recognize that study as a randomized trial today, but it was an early example of an experiment in democratic governance. Over the next 10 years, Lewin's students would conduct many such experiments, producing detailed charts like this one that take a control group and plot their productivity over time, and then compare that to the productivity levels of people who were involved in a wide range of different kinds of group decision-making. Uh, Lewin's students, especially Lester Koch and um, Eric French, uh, made many contributions to our understanding of group discussions and goal setting. They applied them to goal setting, to the design of the different interventions, and also to the analysis and in interpretation of the experiment results. Over time, Lewin came to argue for more than just democratic factory management. He came to believe that uh, through a democratic process of research, study participants could make powerful contributions to fundamental theories of human behavior. Although Lewin passed away in 1947, just a few years into his time at MIT, his theories of human behavior helped launch the field of social psychology, and his approach to research helped inspire a tradition of action research that continues today in the social sciences. Another debate over democracy and social experiments occurred in the 1960s and 70s as the US government began to invest in computer systems that could help them evaluate national scale policies like Head Start, which were part of President Johnson's Great Society Initiative, a, goal, uh, a set of goals where no child would go unfed and no youngster would go unschooled. US investment in computers spread from the factory world to the military to the rest of government in the 1960s as Kennedy's Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, a former Ford CEO, argued that the military should be managed through data, just like factories. When Johnson declared the war on poverty in, the in 1964, the subtext was that social programs could be uh, adopt a data-driven approach to management similar to the, to the military, hence the war on poverty. Th that same year, IBM released the System 360, the first widely available general-purpose mainframe system, equally capable of handling data on military operations and programs like Social Security, which is where it was first deployed. Right in the middle of this transition, in 1971, we get a provocative question from Donald Campbell, the experimental methodologist who wrote the book that US government policymakers were using to guide their experimental policy evaluation. He asked this question, can the open society be an experimenting society? Before I share his answer, let's try to understand what he means by the question uh, and, and ask what is an open society? Uh, the answer takes us back to the Nazis. Uh, Karl Popper, writing as an Austrian exile in New Zealand during the Second World War, is a philosopher trying to understand what he calls two kinds of governance, open and closed societies. In closed societies, authoritarians govern and manipulate the public towards utopian goals on the view that the learned should rule. In open societies, the public is encouraged to evaluate and criticize government decisions so that bad or incompetent rulers <laughs> can be prevented from too much damage. That's the idea 
of the open society. And in the open society and its enemies, Popper yearns for a way to reconcile the social sciences with democracy without resorting to the kind of eugenics that he saw in Nazi Germany. So he talks about two kinds of social engineers and social technology. The, the eugenicist utopian engineer ignores complaints and suppresses criticism towards their utopian goals. But the piecemeal engineer tries to alleviate social ills for everyone through research that informs democratic processes of compromise and debate. When, and when Campbell is asking his question, uh, can, the experiment, can the open society be an experimenting society, he's asking if this second kind of experimentation, this second kind of social science is actually possible. Why is he asking that? Uh, he's asking this, uh, to, to, to see that, let's consider the case of Head Start. Initially imagined as a set of pilot projects, Head Start became widely popular and quickly grew into a $100 million program that enrolled over half a million children in just a few years. Three years into the program, the US Office of Economic Opportunity, OEO, was asked to conduct a short notice retrospective evaluation. To make things worse on these civil servants, President Nixon mentioned very early preliminary results in a public speech saying that the long-term effect of Head Start appears to be extremely weak. The final thrown-together evaluation had many, many weaknesses. And, and poor Walter Williams, the chief of the Research and Plans Division at the OAO, um, tasked with evaluating Head Start, came away from this experience extremely demoralized. First, he said that the, the hopes in computerized systems were oversold, and secondly, that internal conflicts between the evaluators and the uh, policy administrators made it very hard for them to evaluate the Head Start program. Consequently, he argues that if uh, governments want statistically valid results in the future, they, that government social scientists should discard neutrality, they should propose policies, they should actually administer government programs, and they should be the people who make the decisions about final decisions about what those experiments mean for public policy in the United States. Uh, basically asking for the idea of governance of the learned, that experimenters should be given as much power as possible in government in order to get good statistically valid results. And this is the moment, in fact, this is the exact year that Campbell asks his question. Can the open society be an experimenting society? He did the statistical work to give these people their research methods, and he's worrying that they might take that statistical methodology and use it for what Popper called authoritarian ends. We can summarize Campbell's answer to this question in the following way. Research is design, and we can redesign our methods to follow democratic values. For example, contemporaries feared that the validity of experiments would be ruined if participants knew about the study, the famous Hawthorne effect. But Campbell saw experiment participation as something akin to democratic participation. And reconciling these things wasn't a matter of just accepting like the received wisdom, but it was a design challenge that could be addressed through things like group consent. 
another example, uh, Campbell's contemporaries looked for greater political power so they could improve the internal validity of extremely large nationwide studies. If you precisely control how every single locality implements a policy exactly the same way, then you get cleaner statistics. But Campbell pointed out they could also gain other benefits of external validity by supporting hundreds of locally led evaluations and policy ideas. He imagined disputatious uh, communities of uh, local policy knowledge makers who share and replicate each other's findings. He argued that active guidance and oversight from citizens could make the open society an experimenting society because people who have situation-specific information make the best critics and the best judges of a policy idea. And he argued that government should provide citizens with the knowledge and the encouragement to evaluate policies and criticize and disagree with the government statisticians. Unfortunately, most of Campbell's contemporaries viewed this as too costly and impractical, and there have been only a handful of community-led experiments in the 45 years since Campbell first proposed this idea. To sum up this historical picture, we've now looked at two moments in the history of management and policy where technologies and experimental methods co-evolved to meet dramatic increases in the scale and ambition of people's efforts to manage and govern human behavior. We've also looked at key debates over whether these powers and the experimental research behind them would reflect democratic or authoritarian values. What can we learn from those debates for how we think about uh, experiments on the web today? In the Industrial Revolution, firms went from a dozen people to hundreds or thousands. At the birth of policy evaluation, governments gained the capacity to monitor and intervene in the lives of millions of people. And today, online platforms observe and intervene in our social lives of over a billion people multiple times per day. As we data scientists accept the reality that we are the systematic managers, we are the policy evaluators of this era, we urgently need to reconcile that power with democratic values. One make, a way of making sense of the power that citizens have in most experiments today is to borrow from Arnstein's ladder of citizen participation, uh, originating in urban planning. Online experiments typically place citizens in the category of non-participation, or um, sometimes experimenters who care about the public backlash will sometimes uh, do uh, consultation with the public and other tokenistic measures, uh, but they're very different from actually giving citizens power in the process. So when people like Rebecca McKinnon ask how to apply the consent of the networked to the power that platforms wield, we have the opportunity to ask the same questions of our research. Over the last year, I've been asking those questions uh, together with Mary Moo uh, through a project called Civil Servant that supports communities to lead their own experiments on online moderation, borrowing ideas from Kurt Lewin's notions of worker-led experiments and Donald Campbell's idea of a disputatious community of uh, communities that are testing their own questions and putting them in conversation with other communities' uh, experiments. <clears throat> Remember the cruel jokes that people directed at Stephen Hawking? 
While laws and platform policies govern those actions in theory, the comments were practically governed by the policies of the community where they were posted, managed by volunteers in one of perhaps millions of such communities on the social web. Uh, online platforms have relied on volunteer moderators to set rules and enforce them for the last 40 years of social conversation on the web, from conference hosts on the web, well, to Wikipedia administrators, Reddit moderators, uh, admins on Facebook, and moderators on the Reddit platform where we're doing our research. On that site in 2015, uh, which is the, currently the seventh most popular website on the, in the US internet, uh, millions of people comment, uh, submit information, and vote on each other's contributions. And at least large numbers of people have taken on the role uh, with a smaller number of people actually doing active moderation work. And unlike most users on platforms, online communities and their moderators actually have a degree of delegated power, where they're supported to set their own policies, and they're actually given access to data from the platform. They can download information on the collective behavior in their platform and deploy different social bots to help with the moderation work. That data access makes it possible for these communities to do their own experimentation and test the effects of their policies. For example, this spring, uh, this last spring, um, a science discussion community on Reddit approached the Civil Servant Project uh, to try to find ways to improve the rate at which newcomers to their community comply with their rules. This is a community that had over 13 million participants, over 1,200 volunteer moderators, and they have 17, there are 77 discussions a day, uh, ranging from discussions of peer-reviewed research to live question and answer sessions. And they have rules. Some of them we might expect of any community, no abusive, offensive comments, try to keep things on topic, but they also have rules that are specific to their community, like rules against uh, personal anecdotes or medical advice, which are, you know, they encourage people to have elsewhere. And the moderators enforce these policies. In just one week in May of last year, moderators in their software systems took over 8,000 actions uh, to remove things, approve them, and intervene in their community. And th these moderators were curious about whether they could make the rules more visible and whether that might increase the rate at which newcomers were actually complying with their policies. But they were also worried that by showing the rules prominently, they might turn people away. That was a perfect question to test with an experiment, which we did with the civil servant project that Mary and I are creating together. The software uh, supports communities to design experiments, coordinate their interventions, monitor the outcomes, and then estimate the results of the things they're doing to try to improve their communities. Unlike most experiments, Civil Servant is a visible participant in the community. It's actually a social agent that they can see and interact with, and a community can kick the bot out at any time if they decide they're no longer comfortable with the experiment. Because Civil Servant opens up some new ground, um, it's not just one experiment, but it's a system for communities to do experimentation, we had to develop some IRB processes that would ring fence the kinds of things that we'd be able to uh, work on within the con confines of ethics review policies at MIT 
Um, and uh, I should note that we're trying to draw inspiration from Campbell's thinking so that even as individual communities conduct their own experiments, those results are add to public knowledge about how to govern online behavior and allow communities to replicate and learn from what each other find. In a given experiment, here's the process we typically go through. A community comes to us and suggests a study. Um, we then work with them to refine the study design and then deploy the experiment together with the community. Uh, we work with them to interpret the results and debrief the community on the fact that the experiment happened. Uh, and part of that involves opening up a conversation with the community about what that means for what they should do in the future. And of course, we as researchers also publish and hopefully recruit people to replicate those studies. In this community, they wanted to see what the effects would be of posting messages like this, saying, here are the rules, we enforce them, we encourage respectful discussion on the behavior of newcomers. And I'll spare the you know, details of the statistical analysis. We did find that uh, adding these messages to the top of a discussion uh, increased the rate at which, uh, or increased the chance of someone to comply with the rules, moving from a 75.2% chance of complying with the rules to an 82.4% chance. And that um, contrary to our expectations, when people saw that there were rules and that they were enforced, newcomers participated at even greater rates. So to put that in practical terms, in a community of this size, simply posting the rules more prominently prevented over 1,800 people a month from saying uh, the kinds of abusive things that Stephen Hawking received in his, uh, in his Q&A, and also increased the number of, or the rate of uh, newcomer participation by over 9,000 participants per month. Okay, was this experiment done by showing the sticky comment, the stickies, to some users and not showing it to others? So we showed the sticky comment in some discussions okay. and not in other discussions. So everybody in a particular discussion either saw a sticky comment or did not see it? That's correct. There, there are interesting challenges around the um, uh, dependency of one comment on the other that lead us to, to use that particular design. Another experiment uh, we just completed with a news discussion community of over 13 million participants. Um, they have an incredibly a large audience for news about places other than the United States. Um, but they also get a lot of tabloid submissions. And many of these submissions uh, present sensational titles that are really designed to foster prejudice and fear. Uh, but the moderators of this community uh, were uncomfortable. And in fact, the community often pressures them against outright removing content. So they want to avoid accusations of censorship they also want to encourage people to cultivate uh, media literacy around stories of this kind. They're also worried that after people submit unreliable news, if they encouraged fact-checking, yes, people might go ahead and fact-check those articles, but it's also possible that the Reddit algorithms might notice that increased activity and decide to promote those sensationalized, prejudice-laced articles even further. So they came to us and asked, can we find a way to increase the rate of fact-checking while also uh, preventing unreliable news from being spread further by Reddit's algorithms? They, they also decided to use these 
sticky comments at the top of discussions. One of them which uh, points out that uh, a given source is very unreliable, encouraging people to link to media that verifies or questions uh, that material. We actually tested two different versions of this. Uh, a second one which encouraged people to vote and consider downvoting, hoping that maybe if people saw unreliable news, clicked the downvote button, it might uh, suppress the algorithmic spread of this, of these unreliable news articles. In the, in the result, we did find that encouraging fact-checking doubled the rate at which uh, commenters engaged in fact-checking behavior. And surprisingly, we found that while encouraging fact-checking halved the scores that shaped the algorithmic spread of a particular post, when we encouraged people to vote, that effect disappeared. There's something that psychologists call reactance, our tendency to not want to do what we're told that may be coming into play in the cases where we actually tell people to vote. So that just encouraging people to use their critical thinking and not telling them to vote is more effective at limiting the algorithmic spread than explicitly encouraging people to use that voting mechanism. So those are two examples of findings that communities were able to generate completely independently of the Reddit company without asking permission, uh, designed by members of the community. Uh, I think more interestingly, uh, for our purposes, are the conversations that happened in the communities after we released those results. Each of these, each of these studies is opened up to a community discussion. Uh, this one here with the science community um, uh, reached uh, thousands of people. It was voted on uh, almost 8,000 times by members of the community. And I'll just give you a, a flavor of the kinds of things that were discussed in these community debriefings. Over the next few months of my dissertation, I'll be doing more qualitative work on how communities make sense of experiments that they are involved in designing. But here are some of the kinds of things they discussed. They talked about policy ideas, wondering, you know, what are our goals? Do we want to reduce conflict? Or is that debate a good thing? Um, is this censorship? Uh, could it be taken to an extreme. They also wondered, would this apply to other communities? People also talked about the design of the policies and the interventions. Exploring alternative wordings and alternative ways to, uh, to deliver a particular policy idea. People also uh, shared their personal stories. They said, oh, I'm totally an outlier to this. This was not my experience. Or they said, oh yeah, I remember uh, you know, seeing that sticky comment and thinking, oh, I should really follow those rules. Um, people also, you know, this in particular the science discussion community, but across Reddit, where there's a high rate of uh, participants who have at least some college education, people really interested to discuss um, the experiment design itself, which is fascinating, like questioning the statistics or thinking about other explanations for the results that we might get. There are also discussions of research ethics, asking, did we get informed consent? Debating whether uh, university IRB boards really are the, uh, constitute enough oversight over experiments of this kind, and also arguing over whether these ethics debates are really about ethics, or whether they're more fundamental discussions about whether moderators should have power and the particular arrangement of power that exists in those particular communities. And over time, 
uh, other communities uh, have started to reach out about replicating these studies. In the next year or so, we're hoping to uh, continue to grow the level, the number of experiments, and also expand to other platforms like YouTube that also uh, have similar technical affordances for accessing data and moderating uh, comments, as well as sites like Twitter, where uh, communities have created their own infrastructures for monitoring harassment and uh, moderating. Uh, how far could this go? How much could we scale this idea of an experimenting society on sites like Reddit? Um, on Reddit, there are over 1,700 communities that are active enough to potentially do experiments of this kind. And we can imagine a world where even if just a small percentage of these communities choose to systematically evaluate and hold accountable the power they ex exercise, we could grow the number of experiments we have on human behavior uh, you know, to hundreds or even thousands of studies, uh, achieve, perhaps achieving some of those goals that Kerr Lewin talked about around growing our knowledge of human behavior through more democratically managed uh, community-led social experiments. So to sum up, um, I've argued that social experiments and policymaking um, and governing human behavior, managing human behavior through experimental uh, you know, means has a long history grounded in management and policymaking. And then we have an opportunity to learn from these questions and struggles as we think about the future of data science. If we care about adopting values of democracy um, and using the tremendous power of online platforms for beneficial ends, we need a way to reconcile uh, democratic values with the kind of more autocratic tendencies of experimental methods. On one hand, we don't want to go 17 years before discovering the things we're doing um, to keep people safe and foster community completely fail. Um, but on the other hand, we want to make those efforts accountable uh, as part of an open society. Uh, fortunately, research is designed, and we can redesign these methods to follow our values and have a robust debate about what those values are. Civil Servant is our attempt at community-led experiments. It's one effort towards that direction. In the coming months, I'm hoping to have more of those qualitative findings on how communities and participants make sense of experimental participation as democratic participation in community policy decisions. And I want to thank my committee uh, and also Mary Mu, my collaborator, for an amazing year of working on this. And I also want to offset a little bit. I've cited certain folks um, who have been important in management theory and policymaking, um, but underlying that has been a personal journey to reconcile kind of feminist social science with uh, the methods of experimentation that I, I've drawn substantially from Anne Oakley's work that tries to unpack uh, uses of experimentation beyond the paradigm wars. Um, people like Eleanor Ostrom, who've done great work on the use of citizen data and governance. People like Donald Haraway, who've thought about ways to, to generate positive, situated knowledge that can be of use to marginalized communities. Communication scholars like Catherine Squires who've thought about networks of uh, publics and counterpublics that all use knowledge and communications in different ways 
to build up into democratic society. And longer histories of people like Ellen Swallow Richards at MIT, who were really pioneers in citizen science and the environmental movement. Uh, so these are all people who have inspired my work, even as I move into a world of experimentation that has tended to be less inclusive of um, the kind of scholars who uh, I've found kind of some of my deepest inspiration of the years. Uh, so thanks for hearing these kind of beta ideas coming out of my dissertation, and I'm excited to have an interesting conversation with you all over the next few minutes. Thank you. Yeah, great question. I'll be repeating the questions for the podcast. So the, the question had to do with um, kind of the validity and nuance that might or might not be gained uh, from experiments of this kind. Given there's cultural variation, people are different. Um, so there are a couple of ways that I, th I think we're hoping to gain greater nuance um, for practical reasons for communities and also in our hopes to like contribute to theory in the social sciences. One way is through these community replications. Not all Reddit communities uh, are associated with the same regions, and so we're excited to support replications in different cultures and languages, uh, especially as if you know, especially if we move to platforms like YouTube that are extremely popular around the world. It will be possible to look at differences in these experiment outcomes between different cultures, regions, and languages. But also, we're able to do this work at a scale that may allow us to take advantage of emerging um, analysis methods in what are called heterogeneous treatment effects. So normally, when you do an experiment, you look at something called the average treatment effect. On average, um, you know, what is the outcome for people in this group compared to people in this group? Um, and when you start looking at subsets, you lose the causal benefits of randomized trials. You move back into the world of correlation. Um, but there's some new work in data mining that may give us um, the opportunity to look within subgroups to get causal estimates for different kinds of individuals when we have very large numbers of participants. So like with the R science experiment, I'm hoping to collaborate with some researchers on that kind of question because we have 28,000 participants it starts to become possible, if we're able to observe the characteristics we care about, to untangle those heterogeneous treatment effects. And for moderators and for communities, that's incredibly important, because sometimes you might need to know how to tailor your governance interventions for the people in cases where they're going to help and not hurt. One example would be a study we're in the middle of planning around how to reintegrate people who were formerly banned from a community for bad behavior. That's a great example of an area where we might expect that different people might need slightly different 
responses. And uh, either coming up with um, uh, randomization strategies or post hoc uh, heterogeneous treatment effect analyses might help us untangle those things, hopefully in a way that respects um, uh, the individuals who are part of those studies. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think it's a great idea, and um, but uh, and this one is about how you deal with uh, the validity of your results, uh, and especially um, eliminating working variables. For instance, um, I'll go back to the example you gave with the stickies. Um, when you deploy it in different communities or across different uh, boards, some boards might enforce the rules in their stickies a lot more uh, zealously than others, and that might contribute to their, their numbers of when they post something for people to follow it anyway, because they are afraid of repercussion and things like this. And that's something that doesn't necessarily reflect in the results. And so how do you deal with that to make sure that your data isn't skewed from one board to another when you're testing the same kind of thing? Yeah, so the question is about comparability between communities, especially when and I'm going to try to generalize this, especially when you have variables that are really community-driven, right? In, in one way of seeing things, if, if like we can come up with a gold standard measure that everyone uses in all situations, um, then it's easier to compare experiment results between communities. Um, uh, and that's something that we trade off by uh, inviting communities to decide what's most important to measure. Um, I think that's really a, a depends on the details of the study, because in some cases it's possible to kind of go back afterwards and then apply a standardized measure to something like what number of people comply with rules. Like it's really easy to go back and code those things. But there are other kinds of experiments where that might be more challenging, and that's really more of a case-by-case -case basis. I think... Um, my like, personal uh, tendency would be to encourage uh, towards like, more, like, putting my time into more communities doing more experiments um, versus like, coming up with um, like, extremely reliable measures that like, are acceptable to a large number of communities. But like, both approaches, I think, are really promising directions. And one, one idea we've thrown about around is the idea of like creating a, I, I should have mentioned, as, as we go through the civil servant project, each time a community comes up with a measure or an experiment, the code for that experiment is then reusable by another community. And so one way we can slightly bridge that, not entirely, is to share code between communities and experiments. Um, and uh, you know, ultimately it's an empirical Thing that we'll see how it plays out. So I was wondering if over the course of uh, conducting these experiments and in having these moderators, you or they uh, saw any changes in the sort of culture of those particular subreddits, not necessarily just about, uh, not on the topic of, the, of that particular experiment, but this whole idea of a subreddit is something that can be experimented with or on. Um, and I was wondering if you saw any particular shifts in both sort of in terms of the community of moderators and also in the community of users. Yeah, so the question is whether I've seen cultural shifts in 
in the communities, whether the community at large or the community of moderators, around how they think about experiments or how they think about the work of moderation. Um, so that's one of the questions I'm asking in the upcoming qualitative work, and I haven't, I, I'm still collecting a little bit of evidence. I'll be taking, what I'm planning to do is take it, to take moments where communities and moderators did make policy decisions without these community-informed experiments, and then compare those moments to these experiments that we've done with a select number of communities, and uh, try to understand the differences be between those different ways of handling decisions about how a community should be governed. Um, but I can say a few things. I think moderators on, on Reddit tend to be, tend to expect that anything they do will be heavily criticized by the community. Um, that any revelation of the fact of moderation at all will uh, you know, attract a lot of, frankly, hate towards them, either because um, there are organized hate groups on Reddit that spend a lot of time attacking moderators, or because uh, often people don't realize they're moderate, there's moderation until their comment is removed and they lash out at moderators. Um, and so I've seen a number of moderation teams uh, you know, be really surprised that being transparent with their communities uh, responded in interest and discussion and in some cases thank you notes and praise compared to the like typical hate that they receive. So I, that's certainly something I've heard from moderators. And then secondly, I think I've also been like a bit on edge because I've watched the backlash to things like Facebook's experiments and just been unsure how communities would receive these things. And I was fascinated in the um, world news experiment to get thank you notes from uh, you know people like people in the U.S. who are supporters of like the Democratic uh, platform in the last presidential campaign and supporters of the Republican uh, presidential candidate in the last campaign. When I would have expected that um, there would have been have been stark differences in the. Uh, Kind of backlash versus praise between people of different uh, political views in the United States. So there's more of that to come. That's one of the core questions in the dissertation, which is how do communities make sense of these things uh, and how can we learn from that as experimenters? Yeah, so the question uh, is kind of asking us to zoom out and think about what it means for our social interactions to be commodified and what that means for the public sphere, public discourse. And I'm guessing, given your interests, like human rights and these 
wider questions that we might have in society. Um, there's, I've done some work on that, and I think people often think about these things as um, business and um, kind of public goods, and they think about those two things in concert. And I think what my work brings to that is to add this third dimension of governance, of participation. There's, there's work I've done with Tarleton Gillespie um, based on field work with moderators that looks at how um, you know, the work of moderation, in fact, being a moderator involves positioning yourself as a moderator, as someone who contributes to the business well-being of the company, because the company needs you to believe that you're upholding its capacity to survive as a for-profit entity. Um, you also need to position your, your work as um, uh, like civic participation, as a civic good, as contributing to the public sphere, because you're constantly facing pressure from the people you're governing, uh, as, as we were talking earlier. Um, but there's this third way in which moderators also form their own governing class and need to convince each other and kind of gain legitimacy with other moderators in order to maintain their position and um, conduct their work effectively. And so I think like that's one angle on it. The other thing I would say is that these questions apply whether, and I think thinking about it in terms of labor is helpful because that labor need not be for-profit labor. Like we can think about these questions in terms of Wikipedia as easily as we might, which is a non-profit entity, as easily as we might think about them in terms of Facebook or Reddit. And as, um, as we start to see kind of hybrid models like platform cooperativism, where users are co-owners of the platform and gain revenue from the platform, um, bringing the labor frame uh, rather than the kind of just the for-profit frame allows us to kind of think a little bit more clearly, I think, about the ways that labor and governance uh, become enmeshed in the ways that data science upholds that, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. And I'll, I'll send you uh, the, the paper I've written is called The Civic Labor of Online Moderation. Don't know if that's the right term, but that's kind of a phrase that I'm testing out to try to encapsulate those various things and in, in how they interact, in, especially in moderation. Thanks, everyone.